It was a very slow process for me not to want to go back to get movement that wasn't going to return, to find her speech that was declining, and just go ahead and move forward. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and an international presenter on how to respond to dementia behaviors. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. No, I won't forget your wine. You know that. (laughs) And I do appreciate that. (laughs) You know, people talk about occupations that are high pressure and high stress. But I can think of nothing more stressful and have experienced nothing more stressful than being a caregiver. And it's even more stressful when so many caregivers, including ourselves, walk into it really not understanding what caring for somebody with a dementia or a dramatic brain disease entails, which makes it more difficult for everybody concerned. And this is why we gather here and share information from not only ourselves, but so many other people who have experienced this and are willing to share their stories. And that brings us to today's guest, who is an author, caregiver, and advocate, first caring for her mother after a stroke in 2007, and currently caring for her 98-year-old father, and has been since 2015. Her most recent book, A Simple Breath, A Caregiver's Guide to Inner Peace, introduces the practice of putting words to breath during daily challenges to invite happiness and peace into your life. Please welcome our guest, Patty Colomer. Patty, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Patty. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Hi. Uh, I think the first thing that, that we and our listeners would like to hear is about your personal caregiving experience, first for your mom and now with your dad. Well, it's interesting when you were just speaking about the word caregiver. Uh, my mom suffered a stroke in June 2007. And I don't think I considered myself a caregiver for a very long time after that. I considered myself an errand runner, (laughs) a dessert provider, a great duster, um, sometimes vet care clinic to their cat. (laughs) But compared to so many caregivers that I saw, my life seemed um, rather pulled together because my mom and dad were both here at the same time. So it was really my father and myself caring for my mom until she passed away. So they lived still down near Washington, D.C., which is about an hour and 20 minutes from my house. So for a year, my car went on autopilot, and I was down there um, in between teaching jobs. I was teaching uh, summer school, so I only taught three days a week. So I could go down on, on other days for her physical therapy sessions, her meal Uh, and then get back in time here so that really nobody knew I was gone. So I was able to sort of fit all of that in until they moved up here. So uh, about 14 months after her stroke, because of other situations, they really needed, I really needed to be closer. I just couldn't be in two places at the same time. So they moved up here and then she was in the apartment with my dad for two years and then uh, was in skilled care for five in the same building again. So I would 
pull into one parking lot, go see my mom, bring the messages down to my dad, go back with those, his messages to my mom, <laughs> and then get home. Um, and that was in between work and dinner. So uh, after more years, then I understood that really I am the advocate. I am the doctor visit person. And my father is wonderful in wonderful health. He's not able to hear. So I need to be listening and taking notes when doctors speak to him and um, to help him understand, to feel confident about his decisions and any decisions I have to make. You know, I think it's interesting that you started off by saying, you know, you were a caregiver before you knew you were a caregiver or didn't identify as a caregiver. And I think that happens to a lot of people. I know when when Mike's dad, Roger, came to live with us, we didn't see it as, as caregiving. We saw it as providing his dad's coming to live with us. Um, and this is what family does. You know, his mother had passed away. Roger couldn't live on his own. And so he was coming to live with us. And it would be difficult now and then, but we we had we we had this, you know, we we were going to do this, and everything was going to be fine. Um, and even after you know it became first every three months visit to the VA hospital where he got his care, to monthly, to weekly, to the point where there were so many appointments they were coming to the house. It still this is what family does, and really didn't put a title on it at that time. Yeah, in our mind, at least in my mind, I was providing a home for him, basically a place for him to 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 park park himself. <laughs> uh, not so much a, a caregiver, but it sure turned out to be a caregiver. Right. Right. Well, like a lot of people in this world, especially you know when it first comes to you, you don't understand what's involved, how long it's going to take, how difficult it's going to be and how they're going to change over time. Right. I, I look back on that day and that phone call from my father that morning often, and I realize I had no clue that morning what kind of change that would mean to me, to my whole family, uh, to, to every, every part of my life. I'm, I'm not upset about it, but... Uh, it makes me a lot more aware of what changes mean to a person and how to be sort of ready to, and willing for that change to happen. I think I spent well over a year and a half, maybe more, trying to make things go back to the way they were. I mean, I was so focused on, I remember when my mom was first in skilled care, I thought, if I could just get her a hair appointment and she gets her hair done, she's going to feel so much better. Life is going to be better. And I realized how silly that sounds, but it was very important to her. So then it became very important to me. And, and that never, you know, we did get her to a hair appointment. It didn't change things. So it was a very slow process for me not to want to go back to get movement that wasn't going to return, to find her speech that was declining, and just go ahead and move forward, whatever whatever the time will bring, it will bring, and we just have to deal with it when it happens. I absolutely relate to that with Roger. It seemed like every time I got a handle on something and thought, okay, I can breathe, something else popped up. 
And I kept feeling like I was failing him because I, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't make it better. Um, couldn't find the right medicine. Couldn't find the right treatment. Couldn't find the right thing to say in the moment. Exactly. I, I know what you mean when you when you say you couldn't find the right solution because I wasn't even really aware of what the problem was. And anytime something came up, I did feel a failure. And I thought a smarter person, a more equipped person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you start reading in the middle of the night when you wake up about what stroke and movement, aphasia, but, you know, and then you go into what are the aids for eating? What do you need in the bathroom? All this equipment, because I just, I didn't even know things like that existed. Um, so I am grateful for the internet for things like that, but just feeling unknown. And my siblings are separated from me. I have three out in Colorado, one that's a couple of hours away from here. And I felt they depended on me also. You know, they they if you're not here seeing it, it's sometimes circumstances that you face during a day are really hard to describe. And taking the time to describe them isn't going to change anything. And I didn't want to sound like a, a whiner. So I would just um, not say anything and just figure it out, you know, figure it out. Well, what I recommend people to do now that we've got these wonderful smartphones is to video the behaviors and let people see what's going on. Because even if you're really great at describing, I don't think it, it's as impactful as a video. And it also helps for the doctors to see, because as we know, well, I don't know as much with a stroke, but with dementia, they can behave very differently with people they don't see on a regular basis. Yes. And I didn't understand behavioral changes and the, um, especially the side effects. Some of that was side effects from some of the medication that she was on. Again, I didn't know. So I started asking for lists of medications and I wanted to be notified if there was a change in any medication because my father was there. It took me a while for the system in which they lived, the community and the care levels to get the communication set up so that if you would tell my father something, please see me on that, please give me a call. I find in my caregiving life, those paths of communication are a constant challenge so that I get notification when there's a change. Or if I leave town or someone's out of town, I need to know that because I'm the phone number on all of the records and I, want, I don't want to be surprised if I can help it. Yeah, you know, the, the HIPAA laws are, are wonderful laws, and they were put in place to protect people. I totally get that. But sometimes in a caregiving situation, they can be a bit of an impediment. And sometimes with Bobby, that when they found out she was the daughter-in-law, they kind of held her at an arm's distance until she produced the medical power of attorney that said, no, she's, the first, she's first on the call list. But yeah, yeah, sometimes that can be an impediment to actually taking care of the person and providing the best care as the caregiver. There was actually a situation when, you know, we had we had the medical power of attorney, you know, in, in his file in the doctor's office. And I called to make a dental appointment and whoever was on the desk said, due to HIPAA laws, I can't let you make an appointment. He has to make his own appointment. And I said, that's ridiculous. I'm not asking for any information. 
<laughs> I'm trying to make an appointment. And I actually had to call the patient advocate. Uh, and then, of course, I got this lecture about you need to have power of attorney. I said, well, if you look in the file, you'll, you'll find it there. I, I guess I became a very fierce advocate. I, I <laughs> imagine if I looked back in some of his files, there would be some notes that, like, watch out for this woman. Um, <laughs> but I had told him early on, you know, you have many patients. I have one, and I'm going to do what I have to do to see to it that he gets the best possible care. And um, you're, you're right, Bobby, that you'll find yourself, I found myself saying things, standing up for things that I would probably never have done if it was me. I would have just gone home. Mm -hmm. I remember one night at the pharmacy, they told me twice during the day that there was a medication for my father that was unavailable. It was a standard medication. It was not unusual for somebody of his age to have that. And um, I remember standing at the desk and I said, if you give me three pills, I'm going to stand here until you find three pills. I don't need the bottle, you know, and I realize probably to somebody passing by, this woman is nuts. (laughs) So there were those moments where I really found myself just, I am not budging here. This is my dad. I need this now. Mm -hmm. To other moments, particularly with regard to my mom, where I found myself having a, a challenge to communicate to lots of nursing staff people because I didn't want to make anybody upset, but I really needed to get this communication to Mm -hmm. go between the morning shift and the afternoon shift, which is where a lot of times in healthcare delivery systems, there's a breakdown. I I understand that, not breakdown, but there's lots of communication that can be missed that has to be caught up later. And I remember phrasing things like, if you have a moment before you do that, could you possibly, I'm over here, you know, trying to smooth it out because the people that gave my care every single day, they had such a difficult job. She was one patient and I was Mm -hmm. around with her neighbors. I knew what their mornings could have been before 930 in the morning, what they had been dealing with. And yet I had a request. And so I had to sort of weigh, when do I make this request? How important is this request? Should I put it in writing also? Uh, I spend a lot of time trying to not bother anybody most of the time because they they were so busy. And I understand. That was the reason Bobby had to be so fierce with my dad, because in his mind, he was fine. Go take care of the sick people. You got sick people to worry about. I'm okay. I can take care of myself. And if you're on the staff, are you going to say, no, I'm going to stand here and take care of you, or are you going to take care of somebody that's screaming down the hall when you got somebody very gentle saying, go ahead, go ahead, it's okay. And he would not recognize or, more importantly, admit that he needed the help. He was very good at hiding symptoms. Um, and he had so many issues and so many doctors that depending if he was on the medical floor, they weren't necessarily taking care of his psych needs and vice versa. And getting that whole team together um, and telling them, you know, if I have to be the sc- screaming Carducci, this is what I'm going to do, but I'm going to make sure that he gets the care that he needs. And, and it wasn't, and as Mike said, it wasn't that they 
were negligent. It's that they were they were so busy and it was so easy to miss something, even to the point where we were putting signs up on the walls around his bed. Um, you know, he had swallowing problems. So, you know, he had no solid food, thick and liquids, no straws, all of this stuff. And somebody would come in and put a glass of ice water with a straw next to him. And uh, so I, I practically lived there. I mean, I would go, I would drive in to the VA hospital in the morning, um, be there for his breakfast and wouldn't leave until after he had dinner at night. And I each had a doctor say, do you ever go home? Because every time I go by here, I see you. Um, but, and there were so many people who didn't have that support, who didn't have somebody that could do that. Um, yeah, that, that's what was really sad. I am glad that you mentioned that in a way that I, I remember that and I still think of that because we've just gone through COVID and my father, even in his apartment in the uh, multi-care community where he lives, they went through two um, complete lockdowns and made giving care extremely um, challenging. The details continue to change. Again, lack of communication. Where am I supposed to go with his food? what entrance, what, who's taking it, how do I know that he got it, all of those kinds of things. But one of the lessons that I feel like I learned early on with my mom is to step away from any kind of judgment from other caregivers. I really only know my situation. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know all about that even. I'm still learning. But right. when I was at my mom's, for example, especially when she was in those 100 days of rehab, I, people had no one. Most people, I, I had no one. And, um, and even when my mom moved to skilled care, I would see that, uh, one of her neighbors and she was always dressed so beautifully and I never saw, never saw a visitor. And then I would see other visitors and I just, but, so I, they became my visits, you know, <laughs> they became part of, you know, I'll, I'll come in and bother you or I'll say how wonderful you look today. She wasn't speaking either, but who doesn't want to hear, you know, she, I mean, obviously that took some time and energy and care and someone should recognize that. But yet when I saw someone come in, I didn't immediately think, where have you been? I just felt like, I don't know your situation, how difficult Mm -hmm. Because I'm here, I have it made. I feel like I'm in the best position. If I were in Colorado where my siblings were, I don't know how I would be doing because it's got to be terribly, terrible, dif terribly difficult to be a long-distance caregiver relying on phone calls. You know, it's funny you mentioned the woman who got all dressed up, and, um, gussied, gussied up <laughs> as part of... Uh, my activities being a music therapist, I worked as a go-between between a um, care facility that had the music and memory program and an organization to supply or, or to, to provide supplies to them. And so I brought two boxes of iPads and headphones and um, the, the little micro discs and, and the whole bit. And there was a woman in a wheelchair, and I mean, she was all gussied up, dressed to the nines, and said, wow. And they said, hey, she's like this every morning, does her hair, her makeup gets dressed up, 
because she wants to be ready. If there's a place to go or somebody to meet, <laughs> she wants to be on. And I thought, what a great attitude that this made her feel good. And this is what she did. So I, I knelt down beside her because they introduced me to her. And I said, you know, it's really, really nice to meet you. And she's, she was 90, 93, I think. And she says, oh, my, your hands are so warm. And I said, well, that's because I'm hot stuff. <laughs> and she says, oh, dear, I'm sorry, but I'm a little too old for that. You'll need to talk to one of those two over there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There are just so many people. You just If I was little, I would invite her to my birthday party. You know, she would make... Any room, just better. Oh, she was absolutely <laughs> hilarious and delightful. And just that that um, attitude of, if something is going to happen, I want to be ready. Mm -hmm. And if nothing happens, so what? I had nothing else to do but get ready. Such a good <laughs> attitude. I'm glad that you are able to notice that. That's what I feel. When I see other caregivers, sometimes they're so stressed. Mm -hmm. You know, you can feel the stress. You see the stress. And it's really hard when you're in that situation to see anything funny or or fun or ridiculous. Um, and I have to, I think I've trained myself to just be ready for it, to look for it, and to go ahead and make a comment and just like, this is absurd. That is funny. Um, and that's probably why I started writing um, the memoir that I wrote after my mom passed away is because I didn't want anybody to miss the fact that these people that are in circumstances right now were not like that. And they have long, eventful, productive, silly, goofy, awful, you know, lives and I didn't want everybody to just see my mom the way she was that day, because that wasn't that wasn't that the person everybody else knew. Yes. And so that's what I that's how I would approach all the neighbors down the hall when, when we would go for our walk before dinner is just kind of wondering, watching and assuming that they have done amazing things. They were athletes, they were coaches, they were business owners, they were nurses themselves. And to just kind of um, interact starting with that. One of uh, your most recent book, you talk about putting words to breathing. Right. Well, think about breathing, which we often don't think about. We just do it. Um, if you if you take a moment to realize when you breathe, there is a brief pause at the top of every breath, and there's a very brief pause at the bottom of every breath. And I practice Vipassana meditation, which is just an insightful meditation practice. So we spend a lot of time focusing on breath. So that was part of my daily life. And I know a lot of caregivers, you can hear them breathing because they will sigh. They'll sigh in the middle of a conversation. They'll sigh at the end. They'll sigh at the beginning because when we're stressed, we breathe from our chest way up high. So it feels good to take a breath in and exhale because you can't, if you lower your jaw, you can't be tense in your jaw and stick out your tongue at the same time, for example. So there, when I, when I was, as I still am caregiving, I find myself naturally returning to the breath in times where I need to think clearly 
to calm down enough to think clearly so that I can respond in a respectful, informative way rather than just losing it. And so I started breathing in and putting in an affirmation at the top, like, I'm still here. <laughs> and I breathe out, and I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I would breathe in, and I'd say, I can't believe she said that. And I would breathe out and say, but I'm still here. And so um, through the process of my own just coping, how I cope through the day, I realized that this is a practice that I do. And so like you, when you find something in your caregiving life that is helpful, I'm happy to share it with anybody because it's because I needed something to use at that moment, not for 10 minutes, not for 15, not for half an hour, but for this moment of just being here. This is a perfect example of wish, wishing, you know, I knew then what I know now. Um, I had my very first panic attack as a caregiver. And um, of course, that involves the fact that you're, you have rapid breathing. You don't, you know, you feel like you can't catch your breath. Um, eventually, I learned how to respond to them to some degree. And one of the things I do if I'm by myself, I sing, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Um, to help me get that breath back under control. Um, but we were also at a caregiver conference and somebody demonstrated what she called five finger breathing because you carry your hand wherever you are and you, you know, you breathe in as, and then rest at the top and breathe out at the bottom and, you know, just those, those five fingers. Um, so what you're saying is such an important message to people who haven't heard how I breathing can help calm you in a situation where you feel out of control. And I love the things that you were saying. I don't think I can do this, but I'm still here. What a great message. You know, you're saying what the problem is, but you're also affirming that you can do this. That's wonderful. Well, and I, and I encourage anybody who, who I talk to about it, which is pretty much everybody asks me. <laughs> and they usually, you know, I have, people that I don't know that will write these affirmations. There are lots in the book, but I really think you should write down whatever you want. Um, and mm -hmm. she carries them around on a three by five card in her car because <laughs> she never knows. And I said, well, you know, that's great, but um, it can be whatever, whatever is meaningful, whether it's frustration, like I breathe in so much anxiety and I need to breathe out some anger. And it may or may not go, but my shoulders are going to go down. And if you can blink and close your eyes to all your sensory, oh, we're just bombarded in stressful situations with people's voices and lights and the environment. And it's like, if you could just for a second, close that off and realize it, me is I'm here and I'm going to be making this decision, and I'm going to listen to you, and then I'm going to figure out what to do. Not maybe this moment, not maybe for six weeks, but I'll get it. Um, but I can't do that. Um, I think all caregivers, we're living with a baseline stress level very high up in the sky, and we don't know that until we stop for a moment and realize how tight uh, 
tight we are in the jaw, in the shoulders, in the fingers, in the hips, wherever. And once we can take a moment, just a moment of breath to let some of that go, we can't let it all go. I would love to say I let it all go. I'm not there <laughs> yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not that kind of person. But I can let enough go most of the time to try to do my best to help. It's not perfect. It's not even close. But I'm, but I'm trying. I'm trying. And it's funny because sometimes if you take that moment, you can have the aha moment of the, the ridiculousness of the situation and actually laugh that that happens sometimes. When Bobby <laughs> said that you sang, I sang. And actually, I, I'm an awesome singer in the car with my windows up. It's amazing. You know, it's waiting to be discovered. <laughs> but I found I drove a lot back and forth to work. It was a 40 minute drive forever. And I would just be singing and, and sometimes driving from my mom's uh, back to my house. Just I had to just laugh and hear this. I'm sure people probably they didn't see me, but if they drove by and there's this hysteric laughing person in the car, too bad. You know, it doesn't hurt me to smile. It doesn't That's cost right. me anything to smile. And this was ridiculous. And so as a writer, I would often run home and just write this down because no one will believe this. It was just too much what I just experienced. So that brings us to a great place to close because it's also where we started. Laughter is the best medicine. <laughs> Agree. That's exactly right. <laughs> Agree. Well, Patty, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I learned a lot, as I usually do from our guests. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I really enjoyed learning about putting words to breathing, and I will not only use it, I will share it widely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, she's right. As you found out yourself, maybe not in the exact term that she used, but breathing can calm. It can slow everything down. Um, and that's something that we forget. It's, it's so simple that it's so hard. And I think the other thing that she kept saying during her breathing was, I'm still here. I'm still here. It's okay. We can move on. Absolutely. That and one more thing was you may not figure it out in the moment. Yes. And it may take you a while to figure it out, but eventually you will come to some sort of resolution. Yeah. And thank you so much, Patty, for sharing your wisdom with us today. You can find out more about Patty on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us and Laura, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. 
And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.